morning, everybody. We're looking at chapter six of Second Corinthians. <clears throat> page 111, excuse me, 1145 in your Bibles in front of you if you didn't bring your own. It's good to see you all today, another week of gathering together and getting our sights focused back upon the Lord. Let's pray together as we <clears throat> read and hear God's word. Lord, we ask again that you would give us the trust and the faith we have in you. That we would have in your word. That this is your word that has been breathed out by you. It has been the word inspired and more like expired out from your very heart to us <clears throat> that you have breathed it out so that we might hear your word and know your heart because as things happen in our life and as the phrase goes we do not always understand what you are doing or what your hands are doing in the the world around us or in our own individual lives yet we have ample understanding of your heart and father we pray that you would again help us to come to rejoice and to be glad in this day that you have made for us special out of all the week to be thoughtful of this day as a day that you have especially given to your people. So Lord, I pray that we revere it. We also use it to gain access to more knowledge, more wisdom, to hear your word, to share fellowship with your people and today to commune together over a sacrament that points us to one family under one God in Jesus Christ. So Father, we ask that you bless us with this overwhelming sense of this love that you have for us and that you've given to us that's expressed in this gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'll start with chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling, no, excuse me, no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying, and behold, we live. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our, our heart is wide open. Yet, excuse me, but you are, you are not restricted by us but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. May God bless the reading of his word 
together today. Just a couple points of, as we were praying today, and just uh, as some of the points of what we've been praying for, and some of the prayers that are genuine and, and heartfelt prayers, uh, we see this this atrocity, this terrible situation going on with these refugees and of course solidified and I guess emblazoned in our hearts and in our minds are the as the drowning of those little toddlers on the beach uh, watching these people brutally beating women and children and um, it's it's such a, a sad thing and I'm hoping and praying that as that galvanizes for the world hopefully the images of there's something wrong here and something needs to be fixed. I pray that even the death of Christ comes to the hearts of people. As somehow, in some way, that God would raise the image of Christ dying on the cross. And that from that death they would say, why did he die? And what was the reason for this? Something is wrong. What can be fixed? And then also, a commentary that may not always be appreciated, but... Or the perspective I want you to kind of understand is that as we're looking at this this religious freedom that we have and we see this this uh, pretty courageous woman standing up for her religious right and her freedom and her beliefs we I think what we're feeling and we should be feeling is the morning of loss here and the morning and the loss of this freedom that Christianity has had in America for so many years. But we should not be surprised. We've had a great run. We've had a great run. I pray the Lord restores it. I pray that maybe this may turn around somehow in some way. But the Bible has been written. The New Testament was written as we've gone through Peter, as we've gone through John goes through, uh, and John talks about it, that people, and he, I mean, Paul talks about it too, is that we are not, we are not citizens. We are pilgrims. And we have this wonderful advantage of living in America, but as England, which is now nothing but a pagan society, which had tremendous universities and and places of learning and some of the best preachers came out is now just a, a society of pagans. Not to say that there's not vestiges of Christianity there, but to realize that this nation is a nation not of God, only the kingdom of God, as Jill prayed. It is only about the kingdom of God that is eternal and real. So we have to understand that we, we can mourn this and we are sad by it, but this is the way of the human condition. This is who we are. We live in an America run by people, not by God. And so as, as when I was at church this one time uh, when the elections were going on and I had more people praying against Barack Obama winning we had never, I have never heard such fervent prayers in my life for people praying openly, people that have never prayed before, people that never stopped. I mean, they just prayed and prayed. There was such emotion in their prayers that this man not be elected. And before he became elected, I said, I hope that this fervency carries on after this man is either elected or not. Because this is what we should be doing all the time. This is what we should be like. People impassioned for prayer. People who are praying for our neighbors and our families who are lost, our enemies who don't know Jesus. This is who we are, folks. We are aliens. And we live in an alien country that we have become so, so attached to as our identity that we need to remind ourselves that this ain't our home. And yeah, my father almost died. My father and all of his friends and people that he lived with and worked with died and gave their lives for this country. And it is not, not anti-patriotism. It's a perspective that we 
have got to realize that the God of this age, <laughs> this is who is running, and God has allowed it, even though God's in control of it all. What my concern is now is that as we look at these images of these children dying, of this brutality going on in the Middle East, and we see people suffering for our faith, that God is going to be put on trial. God is going to be put on trial as Jesus was put on trial. God is on trial, and it's called a theodicy. It is this ongoing argument and question, is God really fair? Is God really good? If he was good and powerful, what on earth is he doing? So this is what we need to prepare ourselves. We need to pray that God gives us wisdom when we get to the water cooler and somebody says, Hey, you're a Christian. What do you think of this God that's letting these kids drown like this? Right? These well, folks, I'm telling you, as your pastor and as your brother in the Lord, these are the things we need to ask God to prepare us for. Do we understand our faith? Do we understand who we are? Do we understand who God is, what God has promised, and what he hasn't promised? Turn with me as we keep your finger there in, in um, 2 Corinthians, but turn with me to uh, Jude. It's on page 1213, just for quick reference. And the reason I go there is because of my message last week. Jude is writing a letter, and he says in verse 3, it's, it's a, this is a very short letter, only 25 verses. And he says in verse 3, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I'm saying this, just again, as till we get to this, this message today, is that I want to realize that this word is here that you see. Jude, the, is, is being, uh, this letter is written to contend. Contend for the faith. And that's what I want you to be. My passion, I don't ever want, I don't want you ever to, to, uh, to uh, compare my passion for contentiousness. Because contend is to, is to struggle with or face with or argue about or come to grips with or discuss the faith, struggle with it. But contentiousness is looking for a fight and looking for an argument and is a, is a negative thing. And I don't ever want anybody, as I sit here, and I don't want anybody ever to feel that I'm livid, or another synonym for it is pugnacious. I like that word, pugnacious. Looking to cause trouble. I may slam my knuckle on the pulpit and be emphatic, but folks, we are called to contend for our faith. Where is this letter being written? Who's reading being written to? The church. It's written to contend the faith within the church. So when I don't go after the world so much, but I go after what people call themselves Christians, and we are surrounded by not only this area, but this country, by churches that are lying, that are not telling the truth, that are not giving out the gospel. Folks, this is contending. Not being contentious, not saying nobody's a believer, not saying anything like that, but... Paul was holding out as he looks in 2 Corinthians. He says, I don't want you to have this, hear about God and believe and have this understanding of gospel preached to you in vain. Yes. He is talking to the Corinthian church. He's not spraying just certain individuals. He's telling everybody because we assume, and the worst thing we assume, that everybody in church is a Christian. <laughs> 
And I can't assume that no matter what you tell me. I can't when I speak. We can't when we proclaim it. We, only God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who works through the word of God and changes people's hearts. Not me. I will try to persuade, but I won't persuade anybody. You will not persuade anybody. You will be a witness. And as Paul writes to the letter, to, and, and I mean, so Luke tells us in the book of Acts that Paul talks to the Acts chapter 20 to that church of Ephesus. He says, be careful. Be careful because there's going to be people within your church that are going to try to destroy it. And so when I talk about being contending, I'm talking about that if you wear the, the jersey of being a Christian, doggone it, you've got responsibility. When I went to Ichabod Crane and you wore an Ichabod Crane sports jersey, you wore it with pride. And you defended it. Never would I ever put on a Chatham. Brandon? <laughs> ever put on a Chatham. You would wear it. I'd wear your, we'd ask for trouble. We'd go to Chatham football games with our varsity Ichabod Crane jacket with our, with, you know, asking for trouble. That's contentious. But if you put on the name of Christ, if you say that you're a follower of Christ, people, that's where we hold people accountable. That's what I'm saying. That's where when we have other people flocking and running places that you and I know does not preach the gospel, then I think we have a responsibility not to be contentious, not to get in a fight, but to ask him, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Just, just a little explanation for what I was like last week. And I'm trying to be like every week. I'm not trying to tear anybody down. But folks, this is a matter of life and death. That's why Paul is writing. And that's why I'm emphatic. You can be, as I said last week, you can be powerful with a soft voice. Libby Little People know Libby Little, the one who Tom got. Libby, you hear, if you ever heard Libby speak, I went to high school, I may have said this. We went to high school together. Libby, Tom used to ride my school bus, and Libby was in my brother's wedding. And so we've known each other for a long time. Libby's voice is so quiet. And yet she speaks about the gospel in Afghanistan and the ministry that she has. And when she speaks, the, the light is so bright and the word is so powerful. She's not sweating like me. Yet she's powerful. It's not, it's not the messenger. It's what's being said. That's what Paul is saying about as well here. You guys are looking on the outside. Folks, what are these super apostles saying? There's a new book. There's a lot of great books out here, folks. And I'm, before I leave, I'm going to try to give you. I've gotten a, a few books and I'm... Um, I'm going to try to uh, get you interested in reading some of these things and read some segments of them. Again, now this one here is called, it just came out, called Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. It's written by a gentleman named Russell Moore, who is the president of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And what's a tagline that he has... Uh, when they, you know, for these themes or when they have a, a line that they use to describe a book. He says, we can be Americans best if we are not Americans first. He says this, he goes, if so, then we are onward Christian strangers. He says, let's march onward with the confidence of those who know that the gospel didn't emerge in Mayberry and doesn't need a Bible belt to support it. I'm going to read an extended, what may be by the book is the introduction, and I'm going to read just an extended version of this. He says there, a Christianity that is, is without friction in the culture is a Christianity that dies. Such religion absorbs the ambient culture until it is indistinguishable from it, until eventually a culture asks, what's the point what the point is of, of the whole thing. A Christianity that is walled off 
from the culture around it is a Christianity that dies. The gospel we have received is a missionary gospel, one that must connect to those on, on the outside in order to have life. Our call is to be an engaged alien. Now remember I read a book to you, uh, portions of a book to you and, and, and commended to you by James Hunter, a psychologist in Virginia, University of Virginia called To Change the World, came out about four or five years ago. He talked about having a faithful presence, a faithful presence in the community. Moore is saying that we should have a call to engaged alienation, a Christianity that preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our callings as neighbors and friends and citizens. This means our priority as a theological vision of what it means to be in the church, excuse me, to be the church in the world, of what it means to be human in the cosmos. We must put priority where Jesus puts it, on the kingdom of God. But while we are not we are kingdom first people, we are not a kingdom only people. Jesus told us both the king to seek both the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We pursue justice and mercy and well-being for those around us, including the social and political arenas. This means that we will be considered cultural warriors. Maybe so, but let's be Christ-shaped cultural warriors. Let's be those who contend for culture, but not those who are at war with culture. We are, see ourselves in a much deeper much more intractable, much more ancient war, not against flesh and blood or even against cultural forces, but against unseen principalities and powers in heavenly places. We will recognize the necessity of engagement in social and political action, even as we see the limits of such action this side of, new, of this new Jerusalem. But we will engage, not with the goal of winning, but with the goal and the end called reconciliation. That's what Paul was talking about as I talked about last week. We have now been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's who we are. This means that morality and social justice, while good, are not enough. We witness to a gospel that seeks not only to reconcile people to one another, but to God. By doing with the obstacle to such communion, our sin and our guilt. That comes not by voters' blocks or by policy papers, but by a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Over the past century or so, the cultural wars could be categorized as disputes over human dignity, family stability, and religious liberty. The institutions of American Christians on these fronts have often been right, I believe, even too often unanchored from a larger gospel vision and from a larger, frame, larger framework of justice. We should learn from the best impulses of such engagement and use our articulation of our views at these points as part of an even bigger argument. These should point us back to a vision of kingdom, of culture, of mission rooted in the gospel and in the church even as we work with those who disagree with us in many ways toward an approximation of justice in the political arena. As we do this, we shouldn't be ashamed of Jesus. We shouldn't be afraid of being out of step with America. We are marching onward toward a different kind of reign. The church now has the opportunity to bear witness in a culture that often does not pretend to share our values. That is not a tragedy since we were never given a promise to promote values in the first place. But to speak instead of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and of Christ and his kingdom. We will now have to articulate concepts we previously assumed. Concepts such as marriage and family and faith and religion. We should have been doing these a long time ago. Now we will be forced to simply to be understood at all. And then finally, at the end of this, he talks about having an unbelieving friend in college. 
And uh, he goes, as they were having a conversation, she said, uh, having a conversation with an atheist, this time a lesbian progressive activist in a major urban cultural center. She wanted to talk to me because evangelical Christianity piqued her interest as a sociological phenomena. She was most interested in our sexual ethic and peppered me with questions about why we thought certain things were sinful. We had a respectful, civil conversation, though she couldn't help but laugh out loud several times when I articulated viewpoints quite commonplace, not only in his historic Christianity, but in Judaism, and for that matter, Islam. She said that I was the first person she had ever actually talked to who believed that sexual expression ought only to take place within a marriage, and that I was the only person she'd never met in real life who thought that, that marriage could only happen between a union of a man and a woman. She said that if, if uh, she ever met anyone who had seen someone for, for me more, uh, for, for more than three or four weeks without having sex, would not first assume that this person had some sort of religious conviction, but that this person has some psychological scars. She followed this up by saying, so do you see how strange what you are saying sounds to us? To those of us out here in normal America. He says, normal America? I thought this is going to be a rather intriguing book to read. But, so I commend this to you. I, I think we may even have one here. I don't know. I think I may have. I ordered a couple books. Uh, Sally ordered a couple books for me, and it's maybe here that I was wanted to put in, into the library. But getting to our text for today, we remember that last week, again, that's, this is a commentary, not just because I want you to think of this book. It's a commentary talking about what Paul has been talking about, is that it's not about anything but reconciliation. It's about people are at, enemy with, at enmity with God. Paul says it over and over again. God is a, a God of wrath. Judgment is coming. He says in, in, in lieu or in view of this fear of God, he says we try to persuade others. And then last week he looked at it and he says, for the love of Christ, verse 14 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us because we have con concluded this, that once one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He talks about transformation. He talks about regeneration. We looked at, he talked about justification, that we are now reconciled to God. We are now reconciled to God. That's what he is saying it's all about. It's about being justified. It's about, from that justification, we are now transformed people living differently in a world that is alien to us. We become so used to having the same kind of values but really when you sat down with people if you sat down with people in the 1950s or the 1940s and talked about marriage from the gospel perspective i guarantee you you would not have a very agreeable conversation other than it should be one man and one woman after that what is the grounds what is the meaning why what is marriage who, what does it represent? What is it all about? If you get down to the nitty-gritty asking people questions, you're going to find yourself at great differences with these people. It happens all the time. Yeah, I agree with it. You sit down talk to somebody in a cooler, you talk about these weirdos. When you get done talking to him, he's going to think you're a weirdo. He says, this is all from God reconciling himself to the world, not counting the negative side of, uh, of uh, justification, not counting the trespasses against us, but entrusting us, the apostles, and also uh, down to the church, the session pastors, and all the way down to the people like you in the pew. He says in verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, working together with him, then we appeal to you urgently, it's, a, it's an imperative. I haven't talked about imperatives much, but this is an imperative not to receive the grace of God in vain. He is talking to the church that he, by God's grace, created. 
that he formulated, that he gathered together. He is writing to them. He is saying, listen, you give up that, you give up the Jesus you've given up. You give up my message, you give up Jesus. And for that sake, you give up the entire gospel. You have no hope. These other people who are talking do not talk like me. They may be cool and sound great, and they may give you something that you can take out and do something with, but they're not telling you about the root cause of the problems of life and the problems of with you. So he says to them, I don't want you, he says, to receive this grace of God in vain. Now, in the broad scheme of things, it's never in vain because God's will is never thwarted. It is never not done. God calls who he wants to. He chooses who he wants to. He saves who he wants to. But as we're looking at it from a horizontal perspective, you can go to a place and spend like I do, spend time with people, have spent time with lots of people in my ministry, and it all seems like it's been for naught. And for me, I've spent hours and hours and hours and days and even years with people, one-on-one, -on -one, and it never goes anywhere. And they get it, the light seems to go on, but it's like the soils. It perks up a little bit, and then something comes along and just kills it. That's where Paul is speaking of. And so he says here, chapter 49 of the book of Isaiah, this quote in chapter 2, he is saying, today is the day, in a day of salvation I have helped you. And if you read that like we did last week, he is saying here, he goes, today, it is now. Now is the day of salvation. You hear my voice, you hear this word, you read this sentence, today is the day of salvation. The day that was that the prophet Isaiah was pointing to as the day that would change history, the day that Jesus came, the day that Jesus died, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, those historical events change history. And he says, if you hear that today, he says, today is that day. Remember I talked about last week that the inauguration of the kingdom of God has come in Jesus? This is the age. The new age has come in Christ. We are living in a new age. The kingdom of God is here. And he says now, he goes, it is now the day. And if you hear my voice, don't wait till tomorrow to make a decision. Now, I know people don't like, I know when evangelism is saying, well, do you want to accept Jesus now? Sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't. Sometimes people get miffed at you. Some people feel like you're pushing, like you're trying to sell them a vacuum cleaner. You know, they don't want you to push you away. So sometimes I say that, and sometimes I don't. I will say, how do you know that you won't die today? How do you know that you, something won't happen to you, that you won't have the capabilities mentally to make that decision tonight or tomorrow? Paul is saying that. He is saying, I guarantee you right now is right now for your salvation. I can't promise you what's going to happen tomorrow. I can't tell you ever going to hear this again. So now, right now is the day of salvation. You see, that's why he's so importantly pressing upon these people because he is saying, you're being a little obtuse here, people. You're being rather stubborn. Now, he's not talking about everybody, but he can't name names, and he can't go to certain individuals, even though he goes after the leaders, calling them super apostles. He tells everybody because he doesn't know who God, the Holy Spirit, is going to talk to how and what way he is going to prick their heart and cause them to come to faith in Christ. Because we don't know. We don't see the big E on people's heads. We don't know who the elect is. We don't know anywhere there's, elect, there's a label on them saying, oh, they're going to come to go come Jesus on you know, September 10th. You know, we don't know. He says, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. He goes, and so now he's talking about his, in the, what we're looking at today. He says, we put no obstacle in anybody's way. He is saying, the problem, folks, is not with us. You're making it about me, but it's not about me. It's really about you. Now, he loves these people to death. And we've known that, and he shows it over and over again. He's going to talk about it. But he says, we have put no obstacle in your way. If you've got a problem with the gospel, folks, we, as he says here, so you, that no fault may be found in our ministry. He's not saying that he's perfect, but he hasn't put any major obstacles. He hasn't, the apostles haven't put any major goofs or bad decisions or moments of indiscretion on the table for them to be questioned. 
He says, but as servants in verse 4, the servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Well, that's quite a statement, is it not? Quite a statement that we commend ourselves in every way. We have watched over our lives. He's not saying he calls himself the chief sinner. He's not saying that he's not a, a, a sinner. He is just saying when it comes to ministry, they have done everything they could to make sure that they have been at peace with all people, that the gospel has been proclaimed, and that they have not been the issue. That's a, that's a weighty thing for pastors. Because people are looking for obstacles. People are looking for reasons. They're looking for problems with a person's life and a minister's life under a microscope to try to find a reason not to believe him or a finger to point. And pastors, if you have known, have helped. Have not only brought out fleas, have made it obvious like the size of an elephant of their indiscretions that have tremendous effects upon the people of the church. Everybody knows that here. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How does he commend himself? Notice this, they call it a catalog, a catalog of things. He says, one is by great endurance. Some of these people who are here super apostles couldn't stand a thorn. A stone in their shoe. They're such weaklings. They're such frail people. He's saying here, by great endurance, not because it just happened in our life, but because of us trying to be your apostles, because us being your church fathers. He says, and by endurance in afflictions, and again, that's that word that I always talk about, that if you've got a list, that word flipsis, that means that you're painted in a corner, that you've got no way out, that you can't breathe, that you can't think, that you can't even, even exist anymore, you want it all to go away, you just can't go on anymore, that's affliction. Paul says he does, he's experienced that. Hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, Riot, riots, labor, sleepless nights, and hunger. All these are plural because he doesn't want to say it only happened once. It's happened many times. And we have endured those for you. That's how they commend themselves. How else have they done this? By purity. These are the graces that they have been able to show. By purity, by knowledge, patience, kindness. And notice he throws in the Holy Spirit. Because he is not telling you that they have conjured everything up to be pure. They have, it's their knowledge like the super apostles. It's not by their patience. It's not by their kindness. They're looking at the fruit of the Spirit here. They're looking by the Holy Spirit giving them and empowering them and anointing them and gifting them with this gifts. With these gifts to be able to conduct themselves under this pressure. By genuine love as we see is a, a, a gift from God. And he says, by truthful speech and by the power of God. Notice he puts the power of God. It isn't their eloquency. It isn't how well their vocabulary is. It is not how well they put the message together. It is, he is saying it's by the power of God. As we go to, uh, you, turn, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, we just didn't come with you with words, but with a demonstration of the power of the Spirit, meaning that, when they spoke, even though they thought Paul was not very articulate, a very brilliant man, but not very articulate, he said, it wasn't with my words, it was with the power of the Holy Spirit that God used. And he says here with, notice he says now, notice the differences he's going to start changing. First it's with in or by, and now that now the, the categories change, he says, uh, with or through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, meaning that he's ambidextrous. He means that you know, like the swashbucklers years ago, going up the stairs, Errol Flynn going like this, and all of a sudden the guy comes up and he switches to his left hand, he can fight a guy with his left hand. That's what he's talking about. He's able to go one hand to the other. We are able to be flexible. It isn't that we're only one-sided. It consumes us. We are, we, God equips us totally for our lives. We should be able to do it in season and out of season. Through honor and dishonor through slander and praise he says we are treated as imposters and yet true first corinthians uh i think it's chapter four 
He says, we have become the scum of the earth. He says, and that's who we are. And we still are the scum of the earth. We are the refuge to, to the world. We, we are considered the refuge. You know why, folks? It, it may increase in America that no longer that we're going to have that advantage of being Christians and how we are to act and giving us some leeway, we may be considered the refuge and the scum of the earth because of our convictions and because of how we define things. I mean, she said, I can still see that woman, Davis, she says, by what authority do you do this? She goes, by God's authority. She's speaking to deaf people. Dead, deaf people. They don't have a category by the power of God. They don't even, it doesn't compute. She's talking to deaf, dumb people when she says it's by the power of God. Granted, that's what she believes, and we're enamored by and saying, go for it, woman. But to the people she's talking to, she's just become scum. Because these two men want their way, and could give one rip about what God says. But yet when they die, they know they want this God, whoever he or she is, to be gracious and benevolent to them. You see, folks, it's confusing. It's complex. It's crazy. We've got to understand what we believe in. And then he says, as known yet well known. And notice he says, he goes where he talks about uh, by uh, endurance and by these afflictions and now through the weapons and through honor and through slander he says and through being imposters now he says in verse 9 as like a, a comparison contrasting parts here he says we were unknown but you know we're well known we're poor but even in our poverty we're we have by god's grace the ability to make people wealthy how not by giving them things not by the power of the wealth and health gospel, but by the wealthiness of having an inheriting, as Jesus says, you are inheriting the world because you are children of Abraham. You're inheriting the world because of who you are. Who wants, the, who wants diamonds and gold and homes when you, in, when you inherit the world? Eh, you can have those pittance. What do we care? I'm getting the entire enchilada. That's how we need to look at things. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide to you. Now he's not being mamby-pamby here. He's not being an emotional speaker here. He is not saying, oh, now it's time for me to pull on your heartstrings. He is saying, we've been out there for you, folks. We've been flat out there for you. Let's call it. Let's call what it is. We are out there for you. You know how much we love you. You know by everything I've listed, and he's going to go on in the other chapters to delineate how many times he was beaten. Five times with 39 lashes. That's got to be a long time, doesn't it? <laughs> Five times. How many times, how long does it take to heal from that one to get it again and again and again and again? But this is how much he's loved them. This is how much he loves the Lord. This is how much he loves the gospel, that he's willing to endure this. He says, our heart is out there for you. Pastors do that as too, for you all. And again, I don't want to sound like when I've told stories about what's happened in my, my life and how people have in churches have you know, done things to us. It isn't for sympathy. It's letting you know this is who we are as pastors. This is the stuff that we've got to take from people. Because we love you. Because we love the gospel. And God's called us to do this. That's why these people who come in this position need to be supported. Need to be prayed for. Need to be encouraged. Need to be protected. Because the evil one is right out there looking at him. Looking at his family. People attacked you. Attack your family. Go after you. It's happened to me. I'm not telling you a sob story. I'm just telling you what Paul says here. Our lives are out there for you folks. He says, you are not restricted by us. The word here, st stenosis. I like that. You know, I had stenosis. I had to have back surgery. You are not being restricted or narrowed here. He says, we're not narrowing you. We're not restricting you. He says, you are restricting yourselves. He goes, you're the problem. You 
you're not looking at the evidence. You're not listening to what we're saying. Now he's chant and he's saying to them as this. In return, he goes, I speak to you as children. He is their father. He is their spiritual father. He looks at them as a family. We talk to our kids that way. Listen, kids, you're being a little bit dense here, aren't you? You're not getting this, are you? You ever had that conversation with your kids? You're not getting this, are you? It's not that you hate them. You're just trying to make the case. We love you. Look at what we do for your life. And you're challenging us on this? And that's where Paul's argument is. It's about love. It's about passion. It's about desire. It's about the gospel. He doesn't want to let anybody go through his finger. Whether God chooses to save them or not, it's not up to Paul. Paul's treating everybody. He calls them saints. But he knows within their midst there are those who don't believe. And so he is giving them people every opportunity to repent. So, the reason I have... Again, I'm going to take this off. Still got a few minutes left for the communion service. The reason I'm so passionate and contend for the gospel is because, as I said, it's because, it's because I contend for the faith as I desire you to as well. The last quote I have for you today, and as we prepare our hearts for this communion meal, this symbol, this tremendous symbol of grace and mercy, which is not for everyone. How narrow-minded I am, Jeff, that this communion meal is not for everyone. How unloving am I, Fred, that this is not for everyone. But there are people who don't question anybody to go to communion service and say, come on, Jesus loves you. Come and have this great sign of, this, of God's Jesus' love for you by giving his life for you. Bonhoeffer, in his book in the 1930 called The Cost of Discipleship, which you probably read, of course, he was, who was he writing this to? The church. Because the church in Germany was letting Hitler off the hook. In fact, they were supporting him. And so he was so angry at the church not standing up for what they were doing to not only the Jews, but other tribes. He says, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks or peddler's wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasure from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without a price, grace without cost, the essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Man, well, I'm going to join that church. I feel confirmation all the time. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy with the merchant who will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble, if it is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a person must knock, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. 
It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man and woman the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his only son. You were bought at a price, he says in quotes. And what has cost God must not and cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. That's why we contend. Because there are people trampling, trampling on our pearls. For giving out psychology and giving out confirmations and affirmations and lies and blessings that don't even exist in the Bible, or they do, but they are twisted and perverted to let people feel good about themselves, to build churches, to think that God's grace is upon them. People have come to me and say, Pastor, I want you to do this, and I'm saying, no, I don't, I can't. The church, the scripture, will, God will not allow me to do this. But my sadness is, you'll find another reverend somewhere to do it. And they come back to find me and said, we found somebody. And I said, my heart weeps for you. See, I didn't attend Dale Carnegie's class. I'm not here to win friends. Neither should we. But this is what this gospel is all about. This is why the letter is written to contend for the faith to other believers. This is why it's so costly. This is when we eat and drink, we fence it. Not because we, it gives Jeff, Bob, me great power and great satisfaction to say, wow, I think I'll become an elder so I can have all that power over people and that authority. Well, you and I know that we've got Zippo authority on our own. But we are called by God to make sure that you understand the gospel before you eat and drink. Because it's not enough that God's got that against you. If you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, another nail in the coffin. Do you need any more problems in your life? Do you need any more sin in your life? Do you need any more disobedience to have God have more evidence against your disobedience? The answer is no. That's why we fence this table and say, you need to know Christ. Your problems don't go away. This is nothing magical, mystical about this. This represents the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, his death, the covenant that he has made with us. That's why when we eat and do it, we do it in such a way. He says, I desire to have this meal with the, my other brothers, my brothers, Jesus says, we need to desire to have this. Not just to have it happen once a month, but desire this because of everything it stands for. That's why we ask, we say, if you want to eat and drink, do you know Jesus? To go even further, we say, do you know, have you been examined by the the elders to know where your faith is you don't need to become a member we can examine people who aren't who, who aren't members of this church or have never met with them before and don't know where you're coming from to say you can eat and drink we can go that direction or we just say are you a member of another church that's an evangelical church that preaches the gospel we welcome you on that we don't want to fence you against that because if you believe in the gospel and the cost that it took we want you to participate until you ever desire to become a member but that's what we're called to do because this is a pearl of great price. Not for the swine to trample on. So that's why it's so important to make sure that we are very clear about what we're doing to prepare yourselves the week before, to think about the gospel, to think about communion. Are you eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? Do you, none of us are worthy. You've heard me say that a thousand times. Well, I haven't been here that long for a thousand communions, but a lot. A lot of times you've heard me say, eating in an, and you've read it, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, meaning that you deserve this, that you can, God, God can't wait to give this to you because you're such good people. 
and you're not as bad as Jim. So, man, you, you're in a scale. You're doing in a, going in a great direction. That's, we got to make sure that our explanation, because there was a time in my life, folks, when I took communion, I told you this, and I would have been, yes, it's so important in my life. Yes, it's all the reasons for taking communion. And you and I would have walked out singing Kumbaya, when really, when we stand there and we talk about what communion is, I would have said, no, I think you're a little bit off the wall, Jim. I think you're a little bit too strong. I think you're a little, you're a little too convicted here. That's, that's what we're called to do. We're called to make sure that we explain to people who we are, why we exist, why we are so thankful, why we give our lives to Jesus, why we are willing to die for the gospel. And that doesn't mean, mean physically. That can mean our reputations. Willing to die. A thousand deaths in reputation because you are so doggone convinced that Jesus is the only way. So as we prepare, let's ask God's blessing. God, we praise you and thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the word of God that we have to teach us at all times who you are. That you have given us everything we need for life and for godliness and for our faith. And we thank you, Father, that you have given us clear understanding of the cost it took for us to have the privilege of wearing this name of Christ. So, Father, as I have gone on at length with what it means and how important this is, I pray that you have spoken to those you desire to speak here today who don't know you and that you have called them to come to know you and have called them to follow you and to eat and drink this in a way that is worthy, in a way that you accept, and that is we come in the name of Jesus. Father, for those of us who have dedicated ourselves at one time to this calling that you have specially given to us as individuals, called us by name. Lord, we rededicate our commitment to the gospel in the midst of this community of faith which you have created, that this is our new family, a family that we will be with forever. And so, Lord, we rejoice of communing with each other as we all, as Paul writes to us, as we all proclaim the life and the death of Christ. Every time we drink and every time we eat. So, Lord, we ask your blessing upon these elements, upon our actions, and that we do everything to glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Great. We're going to, again, uh, as we started last time, be able to remain in your seats and be served the, the elements. So um, Jesus took the bread. He held it before his disciples. He, he uh, thanked, asked the Lord to bless it as we have. And he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken
this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this, he says, remember me. So let's eat and remember Jesus. took the cup again in the eyes of his disciples who were still on the way <laughs> he said to them this is the cup of my blood the new covenant the new testament that I make with you a fulfillment of the old so whenever you drink this he says remember that I've died for your sins this is for the forgiveness of your sins so when you drink, he says, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Time to uh, think about the ministry of the gospel and also the work of mercy and justice and the work that we do with the hands and feet that God has given us now a new creation to do things for a whole different way. Not just to be involved in social issues, but to be the extension of the, the hands of Christ and the love of Christ. So we ask the ushers to come forward as we take up the offering of the deacon's son. <laughs> 